want to begin this morning by sharing three different data points with you. First, I read in an article earlier this week, an article about a phenomenon of churches. They called it the Purple Church. Neither Republican Red nor Democratic Blue, the Purple Church includes believers of different political persuasions. And the author of the article said that this was normal in American Christianity for many, many years, and yet just as American political life is becoming more polarized, so now also our churches are becoming the same way. Purple churches, which used to be common, are now more rare as people self-select into the churches that they think more accurately represent or reflect their politics. Second data point, late 2022, just last year, a new study of pastors, more than 40% of pastors considered quitting the ministry last year. What were the reasons? You can probably guess many of them. COVID restrictions on worship, arguing with their congregants about vaccines and masks, politics, the 2020 election, tensions in our communities over race and policing, cultural challenges, money problems, depression, anxiety, failing marriages. The list of reasons probably isn't all that surprising to you. What's different is the rapid rise in the number of pastors who considered quitting. It went up by 10 percentage points in less than a year. Third data point, Aaron Wren, a popular Christian conservative writer, wrote an article in First Things Magazine last year. He said that Christianity is encountering what he calls a negative world. Listen to how he describes the current social situation. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. What's going on? It's obvious, I think, that many Christians today, including our pastors, are on the defense. Not only is the world considered dangerous, but divisions within the church threaten the very place of safety that people thought they could find. Instead of the unity for which Jesus prayed, the church seems weak and fractured. And that means that we live in an age when the church is very much like the church in Philippi, the church to which Paul writes in this letter to the Philippians. If you know the Philippians at all, maybe you are aware of the two women that Paul mentions at the end of his letter, Yodia and Synctity. These two women were at odds, and, and maybe in your mind, when you think of Philippians, you think, oh yeah, that's the letter that Paul wrote to those two ladies that were upset with one another. But Paul didn't write this letter just to deal with a 
personal division between two important women in the church. You know, the, the problem is much more serious. The church faces opposition outside the congregation, social opposition. This negative world that Aaron Wren speaks of is not a new phenomenon. They faced opposition outside, and they faced opposition within. Internal divisions that weakened their church. And to a church that is faced with these kinds of existential threats, outside is dangerous, inside is dangerous, what is Paul going to say? How is he going to counsel this church? How how would you counsel this church? What kind of advice would you give in a situation like that? Paul preaches the gospel. Paul doesn't call together a study committee. Paul doesn't pull together a a consultant. He doesn't talk about their marketing campaign. Paul preaches the gospel. He tells them what already belongs to them in Christ Jesus. Before he tells them to do anything, he tells them who they are. What does he say? What does he remind the Philippians of? What does he remind you and I of? What do we already have? We have, he says in verse 5, the mind of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let's unpack this a little bit. First, look at verse 6. In verse 6, Paul reminds the Christians there in Philippi, he reminds you and me, he reminds them that Jesus, before he was ever conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus already existed as the eternal Son of God. When we speak about the Trinity, this is what we're speaking about. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son does not come into existence at Christmas. He has existed for eternity past. Look at Paul's language in verse 6. He was in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, in eternity past... Every way that we might imagine the glory and the splendor of God belonged to the Son. He also, Paul goes on to say, he had equality with God. That means that he shared the same prestige. He shares the same power as the Father. The Son is not a lesser being than the Father. There are some religions out there that will teach that. Our Mormon friends teach that. Our friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. But Christianity says that he is equal in power and in glory with the Father because he has the same nature as the Father. Now Paul's point in reminding us of this is that when it came time for God to begin His cosmic rescue plan of salvation, the Son did not consider His divine prerogatives something to be exploited for His own benefit. 
He did not view his equality with God. He did not use his equality with God as a pretext to serve himself. He didn't look at that and say, well, do you know who I am? This is going to now be a platform for me to achieve my own self-interest. Oh, but that's exactly what we do. That's exactly the problem in Philippi. As soon as we have anything that we can call our own, we protect it at all costs. Instead of laying down our lives to serve one another, we establish boundaries to protect ourselves. Paul goes on a step further. Verse 7. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. My friends, there have been very many well-meaning, kind people down through history who have given up their life of ease and prosperity to serve others. Is Paul just merely giving us another inspirational story? No. Something different is going on with Jesus. He isn't just a moral guide. He isn't just a spiritual guru. He isn't showing us a better way to live. He is the all-glorious and all-powerful God who added to his divine nature a human nature. Limited, like ours is limited, but unstained with Adam's sin. He took on the form of a servant, you and me, our form. And then Paul says, Jesus goes even further down in his road of humility. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who was God allowed himself to die by the basest form of execution imaginable in his day. Normal people in the Roman Empire were not crucified. Slaves who tried to throw off their masters in an uprising, they were crucified. Terrorists who tried to upend the empire, they were crucified. Even the very word cross was a curse word in Roman society. And the ancient Jews, of course, as you know, believed that anybody who was left hung on a tree to die was especially cursed by God. But Jesus didn't stumble into that death. It wasn't thrust upon him in surprise. It wasn't by a power beyond his control. Jesus obediently walked to it. We, we heard that even in our Isaiah 50 passage this morning. I gave my back, the servant says. I hid not my face, the servant says. Friends, this is the mindset of Jesus. The mindset of Jesus, who was equal to God, he allowed men to arrest him. He allowed men to try him. He allowed men to spit on him and kill him. 
he allowed it. He's the only one who could have ever said, I am better. In every way, I am better than you. I am more holy. I am more powerful. I am eternal. I always have been. I always will be. But he didn't hold on to those rights. Instead, he gave them up. And he went to the cross for you and me. This pathway that Jesus walks down to humiliation and ultimately back up to exaltation, as we'll see in a moment, from suffering to glory. Friends, Paul is saying that that's your pathway too. That this is your pathway. Now some of us are kind of rubbing our hands together. Okay, that means that if i got to suffer now, I'm going to really rub their faces in it tomorrow. I can be humble now and I'll be powerful against all of my enemies at the end of the day. No. Paul isn't telling these Christians to humble themselves now and wait for glory later when they can finally show all the people around them how great they are. Again, look back at verses 6, 7, and 8. Through the downward trajectory of suffering and sacrifice, Jesus is the subject of every attribute. He is the agent of every action. He was. He did not count. He made himself nothing. He took. He was born. He was found. He humbled himself. He was obedient. And then there's a shift. Verse 9. In verse 9, suddenly, God the Father takes the initiative. And He becomes the actor. God, Paul says, has highly exalted Him. God has bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And of course, the end result is that every creature's knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the exaltation of Christ. But even that, it's not for him. It's to the glory of God the Father. Verse 11. How small does our agenda look like in comparison? How small do our rights look like in comparison? And yet we treat them as if we could never give them up. As if there would never be anything that would pry them from our hands. Friends, the exaltation that God bestows on the Son sets before us a far grander purpose in life than anything the world can offer us. And it also equips us to follow after him in obedience. The writer David Foster Wallace famously said that anything I've ever given up in life has claw marks in it. Where are your fingernails dug in this morning? See, Paul believes this message is necessary because he knows that when Jesus went to the cross, his purpose was not 
only to die for your sin. It was not only to set an example for you of humility. It was also to change you. His purpose in dying for you was to change you, to reconfigure the inclinations of your heart so that his mindset would become your mindset. His mindset of joyful, selfless service would become our mindsets as well. Who do you give joyful, selfless service to? All of us, are e- we can easily give joyful, selfless service to, to people who serve us. Well, you love me, I love you, it's great. You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Man, that makes me feel good. What about the person that owes you respect and has not shown it? How quick are you to engage that person in joyful selfless service the person who owes you an apology and will not say it can you serve that person joyfully selflessly what about those who gosh i'm going to ask you to really be honest those that you think deserve nothing but your contempt. Can you really be joyfully, selflessly serving? It isn't natural, is it? It is a supernatural gift. A gift given to those who have been rescued from their sin. A gift given to those who have been engrafted into new life in Christ. Friends, I hope you can see how relevant this is. Our natural inclination is to retreat. Our natural inclination is to protect ourselves. Our natural inclination is to exert our rights. I know this wasn't printed for you in, the Bible, in your bulletins, but if you have your Bibles, just quickly look back at the earlier portion of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Can you see the distinction between the way that we naturally act and what Jesus has done? Whereas Jesus acts selflessly, not grabbing hold of his rights, our natural inclination is to act selfishly, with ambition. Some of your Bibles might say with rivalry. Where Jesus acted humbly, making himself nothing. We are tempted to try and be more than we really are. That's what it means, conceit. Folks, take a moment right now and consider your life. I think the hard truth that many of us have to own up to this morning is that most of what characterizes our existence is grabbing. Grabbing hold and not letting go. 
lurching after those things that aren't really rightfully ours. Thinking that if we have it in our hands, it makes us something. What's the answer? How does this problem get solved? Go back to verse 5. Have this mind. That's a command. Which is yours. That's a promise. Remember who you are. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. That's what I'm telling you this morning. That's what I am telling me this morning. Remember who you are. And act because of who you are. This call for you to have this mind, that's not a burden on you. Instead, it's it's a lifting of the veil of darkness. Paul reminding us who we are, what is ours. So folks, if you are struggling today, struggling with resentment, struggling with fear, with anger, with revenge, The answer is to remember who you are. The gift that has already been given to you because you have been rescued by Jesus. The one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Sure, it was a sign of royalty. But the prophet says he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble and lowly. Whenever you find yourself holding on just a little too tightly, holding on to your comforts, grasping your conveniences, bear-hugging your rights and privileges, turn to Jesus and worship. Worship Him until the fingers begin to release and you fall to your knees, and with your head raised up, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is the irony of the gospel. You have to go down before you will go up. Humility and service must mark your life if you belong to Jesus, because they marked his life. But going down in humiliation is not the end of your story, for God has exalted Jesus. God exalted Jesus far greater than anybody on that road in Jerusalem could ever imagine that day. And his exaltation, friends, will be our exaltation too. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we find ourselves so often with divided hearts, asking that you would make us like Jesus, and then with our fingers crossed behind our back, whispering, just not yet. Wanting 
all the benefits of the gospel and not willing to make the sacrifices. Confused by our own contradictions. Lord, lift the veil of darkness off of us so that we can see Jesus and as we see him, may we see ourselves in the gift that you have given us because of his work for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.